This episode of One True Podcast is supported by the Hemingway Review, the scholarly journal of the Ernest Hemingway Foundation and Society. Michael and I are huge fans of the Hemingway Review. We always read it to see the latest scholarship. You can buy back issues of the Hemingway Review at HemingwaySociety.org backslash journals. Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon producing. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, all you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Michael and I have been spending the year slow reading A Farewell to Arms with our supporters on our Patreon site, and I've been obsessing about it for an edition that I'm lucky to be preparing for the Norton Library. In my research, one of the articles that has the most traction and has inspired the most conversation is a feminist reading of the novel from 1977 that skewers the novel's treatment of women. It is brilliant and provocative, and One True Podcast is delighted to welcome its author, Judith Fetterly. Judith Fetterly taught at the University of Pennsylvania and SUNY Albany, where she retired as distinguished professor. Her 1978 work, The Resisting Reader, A Feminist Approach to American Fiction, has earned a position in the canon of literary criticism, including its incendiary second chapter, A Farewell to Arms, Hemingway's Resentful Cryptogram. Professor Federley is now an avid gardener and runs a gardening design business called Perennial Wisdom. So we appreciate that she's here talking with us instead of out in the sun. Judith Federley, welcome to One True Podcast. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to have you here today to talk about A Farewell to Arms and the rest of your work. So why don't we start with uh, the book as a whole? What is a resisting reader? In a sense, to answer that question, Mark, I think you have to go back to the question of what is American literature? Because um, unlike other literatures, it's not, it doesn't come with a quote natural definition. That is, one could say, for example, English literature is literature written in English, or one could say English literature is literature written in England. Obviously, those terms would have to become much more complex, but you can't even begin to say something like that about American literature. There's no such thing as, a, as, a, as American language that is, that is distinct right. from English. There's dialects, of course, and differences, but but there is no such thing as American as a language, and there is no such place uh, as America. Uh, we regularly include in our courses literature from British colonies. We regularly now include in our, our courses literature from the Spanish um, conquest of America. We include Native American literature wherever possible. So it's a it's it has no natural definition. And therefore, it has always been defined by theme. 
And the prominent theme that I was taught in my graduate education in the 1960s in American literature, undergraduate and graduate, was, of course, the what may still be for most people the canon of American literature, which is entirely male and features the, you know, uh, what D.H. Lawrence called stoic. Uh, he had another adjective and a killer, stoic something and a killer. But it is the, the, the notion of, of the American as the cowboy, as the man, as the lone figure, the heroic lone figure, uh, fleeing from society, like Huckleberry Finn says at the end of, of Huckleberry Finn, I'm getting out of here. I got to get away from society. I'm heading out for the territory. In that, it's, it's Deerslayer. It's all these iconic figures that have defined what constitutes both the definition of the American and the definition of what constitutes an American piece of American literature. Uh, as you probably know, after I finished The Resisting Reader, I turned my attention to American women writers because I was curious to discover what they had done in the 19th century. We get some glimmer of women writers in the early 20th century, but in the 19th century, they were, they, any, any critic who ever talked about them had first of all never read them, and second of all had a great deal negative to say about them. But they were writing extremely interesting texts, but they bore very little relationship to what has come to be seen as the classic tradition of American literature, and therefore they were not included in the concept of American literature. So I was looking at a canon that was totally male, I would say relentlessly male, and that both reflected a sexist world, but also had a certain intentionality to it. Now, the question of intention in literature, of course, is very complicated. But I would argue that that one can make the case for a certain degree of intention that is beyond the intention of the material described. There's obviously an intention in sexism. There's a powerful intention in sexism and in sexist texts. It's designed to create men and women of a certain sort, relating in a certain way to enhance the powers of a certain set of people. But um, I would I would assume that these texts also, since they were so similar and so so relentless, uh, perhaps I should have said that the critics who created that as the canon of American literature had a had an intention. But they chose texts that that portrayed women and men in certain ways, and that portrayal was was pretty fundamentally, you know, men good, women bad. And men best when they're without women. So the resisting reader came about as an attempt to, to provide women with a, in the language of the day, provide women with a, a lens, a framework for looking at this literature, which would allow them to resist its messages about how they should be. Because some of these texts, especially Hemingway, such a cult around Hemingway, so that if you read Hemingway, it's like the men want to be like the Hemingway men, and then the women are supposed to be like the Hemingway women. And and it's um, it, it, trying to give people an alternative way of seeing these texts so that they didn't have to feel they had to imitate them or follow them or believe them particularly. So that was the, the design behind it. And of course, I would still really like to to see most people being resisting readers of contemporary sexism. Uh, that would be a good thing too. Judith, has contemporary sexism, as you call it, 
Is that of a different kind than you found when you were writing The Resisting Reader in the 1970s? Did you and fellow feminists rescue some aspect of feminist literature or is there still, is this perpetuating? Well, in the culture at large, of course, things are very different. Um, there's still virulent sexism, but it's actually virulent and it's, it's pretty open. I mean, the, what's going on in the field of abortion is, is incredibly virulent sexism. I mean, down to the point where they're actually willing to say, we don't care if women die. Uh, we're, we're talking about the fetus because the fetus might possibly be male. There's a 50-50 chance that the, that fetus might be male. So we, you know, who cares about the women? Um, if they had a way of knowing that the fetus was female, they probably wouldn't care if it was aborted. But it's, you know, it's virulent and vicious sexism that is happening, but people recognize it. Um, in terms of literature, of course, the field of American literature, I've been out of it for quite a while, but when I left, by the time I left, you know, those of us who had worked on African American texts, those of us who had worked on, on women's texts, white women's texts, um, you know, those of us who had worked on bringing the Spanish tradition into American literature, the whole field of what constituted American literature had changed to the point where I remember reading one very persuasive essay, uh, part of a book, I believe, and I can almost remember the guy's name, but where he claimed that The Tempest was the first piece of American literature, which I thought was just yeah, brilliant. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it's so true. It's the first piece of American literature. And the movie captured that beautifully right there at the end. There's Gwyneth Paltrow coming out <laughs> of the water, landing in Virginia. It's like a recapitulation of the opening of The Scarlet Letter, only with presumably her not being shoved into jail. Uh, but being given a chance to be, uh, you know, a freer person like Yentl, the same thing. Yentl comes to America because in America, a woman can be something more. So, yeah, I think I think there's still uh, a tremendous need for for resisting uh, readers. But I think the landscape has changed. Uh, the landscape has changed enormously since since I wrote the book. I mean, people who who haven't lived through the 50s have no idea what it was like to to grow up in a culture where when, when I went to buy uh, a house with my husband, I was making more money and I was at a far more prestigious institution. My income meant nothing. I couldn't even sign on to the house. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't be on the mortgage. Um, it, it was, it, it was unbelievable how, how bad those laws were. Men could rape their wives and, you know, it wouldn't be rape and so on. So people don't really recognize that anymore. You start your chapter on A Farewell to Arms with a gesture towards Hemingway's earlier story, Indian Camp, and you juxtapose the notion of childbirth in Hemingway. So Hemingway, the son of an uh, obstetrician, uh, and also who also, uh, as he was writing A Farewell to Arms, his wife did go through a difficult cesarean operation. But you you bring these two narratives together, Indian Camp and A Farewell to Arms, that you acknowledge are, are somewhat opposing, yet they serve your same the same rhetorical purpose in your argument. Can we talk about Hemingway and childbirth and what it says to you in your uh, argument? I'm a great fan of Hemingway's early stories in In Our Time, and also of the way in which he weaves 
that narrative of Nick's childhood and development in with stories of war. I mean, that, that wonderful first sentence, the strange thing was how they screamed every night at midnight. I mean, that's an incredible first sentence. I mean, that's that could be, you know, he talks about the women having children giving birth to babies. I mean, right there right. in that horrible situation where this population is being assaulted and they're trying to get them out of there. You know, and this brings up the thing that we talked about earlier, which is the question of Hemingway's style, because I feel very strongly in those first stories, he makes it quite clear that Nick has been permanently damaged by his father's attempt to introduce him to the cult of masculinity. Now, it's partly because his father is a total fraud. I mean, in that next story, The Doctor and the Doctor's Wife, you see the unopened medical journals. You see the wife as a Christian scientist. I love that detail. Because, <laughs> <laughs> of course, they don't believe in doctors. So that's a brilliant story, too. And so, of course, the doctor is not, you know, really the man he seems to be. But still, in all, the idea is, look, Nick, I'm going to show you, you know, what, what real men do. And the, you know, the result is totally traumatic. I would say totally traumatic for Nick and, and permanently, uh, affects his capacity to relate mm. both to himself, to his body, his sexual body and to women. Uh, and that that was an insight that then translate, translated into Hemingway's iconic style which is a style, as, as you know far better than I do, but a style where what's said is just the tip of the iceberg. It's what, what's, what's said, what it implies that is so powerful. Uh, and, what, and the fact that Nick can't say it is what matters, that he's, he's simply so traumatized that he can never really get to what's actually um, bothering him. Uh, so I think you know, and it's it's hard to know. I haven't studied Hemingway, honestly, that much. But, you know, I, I think that, I, I like to think that he had a different choice with his career. That The path he took was to say, okay, my dad was a fraud, so I'm going to be the man my dad wasn't. But, of course, he never escapes that because in the end he commits suicide just like his dad did, right? He, he doesn't escape being his father. Uh, if he had taken the other path and said, you know, you know, my my father tried to show me what masculinity was about, and boy, is that a bad a bad thing to be. I'm going to become the champion of alternate views of masculinity. I mean, he could have taken a completely different turn. I think he the turn that he took at the beginning, he could it, the turn that he took at the beginning really would have suggested that way because it shows Nick so damaged, you know, so unable to articulate what is going on, so unable to relate either to his father or to his mother or to his girlfriend or to his boyfriend <laughs> or to himself. Uh, and, and so, you know, that, and the question I have then, of course, which, which I suggested to you is that, is there something about Hemingway's style that by definition cannot be repeated much after the first time it's done? That, that it's so powerful 
And it so quickly leads to imitations, even by Hemingway himself, that it was a real one-shot deal. Because my view of Hemingway over the whole career is that the writer got lost in the persona. Do you include a farewell to arms in that first phase where the style still holds uh, that original kind of power, or do you think he had lost it by then? If I had it to do over again, the book I would have looked at would, would have been The Sun Also Rises. Yeah. I I think The Sun Also Rises is a, is a far better book and has far more of the power of that compressed style, that style where where what is said is so powerful because of what it Im- implies as to what is not said. I was going to ask you if we can think about Catherine Barclay with respect to Brett Ashley from The Sun Also Rises. Do you see treatments of both female characters as sexist? Yeah, I mean, Brett Ashley, I mean, honestly, you know, I don't know exactly what the nature of 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 Jake's wound is. They could have probably figured out how to have had a sexual relationship or how to have made things work. I mean, the whole thing is kind of absurd. And and again, it brings me back to the point that what's what interests Hemingway is figuring out how to create male how to create situations where male characters can avoid growing up. Because growing up is so traumatic. Indian camp made that clear. You just don't want to grow up and make a woman pregnant because she's going to die. Somebody's going to cut her open with a jackknife and sew her up with fishing wire. And then she might die. And definitely the guy's going to die. He's going to cut his throat. As the father is ripping open the woman's stomach, husband is slitting his throat. So these are stories where, where you got to find a way, a legitimate way to keep the hero a hero, but he doesn't ever have to grow up. Mm. And you know, Brett Ashley is the opposite. You know, she's the flip side. She's the the dark lady to the white lady. I mean, this is so classic that there's the bad woman and the good woman. The good woman is always dead. The bad woman demands of the man things he can't give. And she's bad and she should die too. In Indian camp, as you just mentioned, the father dies. And then in A Feral to Arms, the wife or the girlfriend dies. But does that really amount to the same thing for you, that childbirth ends in violence, death, unhappiness? I think in Indian camp, what, the, what, what he is getting at is how traumatic that lesson in what it means to be a man is for Nick. And that lesson is given by the doctor. The doctor is, you know, that's one for the medical journals. And, of course, he never reads the medical journals. They're unopened in the doctor and the doctor's wife. But but he is the one that's sort of showing Nick, this is how you treat women and particularly how you treat Indian right, women. Right. You know, so this is a lesson not only in sexism but in racism. So you're a white boy. You get to cut women open with your jackknife and sew them up with fishing gut wire. When the doctor says her screams are not important, I do not hear them because they're not important, that is what makes it, and your word was contemptuous. The childbirth is contemptuous. Well, you know, that's why I love that first line. The funny thing was, or the strange thing was, I think it is, I always think the funny thing was would have been better, but the strange (laughs) thing was is the actual word, how they screamed every night at midnight. And of course, the first that's the first thing Hemingway hears. 
Yeah. It's the screams. If you think of him as Nick Adams, the first, what he can never get out of his head is the screams. And right. instead of analyzing that and coming, I mean, he could have been the icon of a whole different view of, of what it means to be masculine and feminine. Instead of that, he goes the opposite extreme. The only way I'm going to get rid of those screams is if I become super masculine, yeah. the right kind of super masculine, you know, who capable of cutting open a woman and, you know, doing that, but wouldn't. But, uh, you know, he, yeah, he, he's, he, he can't, he can never stop hearing those screams. The phrase in A Farewell to Arms that becomes really a turning point is the biological trap, right? When Frederick and Catherine are discussing Catherine's pregnancy, what does the biological trap mean in the novel and in Hemingway or in all of American literature? Well, I think in that particular scene, it's, it's pretty, I mean, I would, maybe it's, maybe this is too simplistic, but I think it's pretty obvious. I mean, the biological trap is that, you know, you have sex, you have children, you give birth, you can die in childbirth, but it probably can be extended. Um, the cryptogram part of it, you know, it can be extended to the biological trap for men is women get pregnant, they have children, and then suddenly, you're, does Frederick Henry want to be a father? I don't think so. I mean, there's nothing in the character that suggests he wants anything, anything like that responsibility. So I think that's another, um, another view of the biological trap. And then another way of thinking about it in the novel is the biological trap is that men are, most men, I mean, obviously I'm gay and I have many gay friends, but, but, most men are constructed to want to have sex with women. And this is a very um, difficult and complicated arena for the men of Frederick Henry's generation and, and of Hemingway's generation. Because the, the, the breakdown between the, the women you want to have sex with immediately become whores, and then you can't have anything to do with them seriously because they're just whores. But the women that you can have some relationship with, it, once you sleep with them, they become whores. So where, what are you supposed to do? I mean, there's, there's nothing you can do. <laughs> you, you go off in the wilderness and you do whatever men do by themselves in the wilderness. Well, in, in A Farewell to Arms, this notion of whores becomes an actual one because the whorehouse that's near the, the base becomes a really significant thing. And in your discussion of this uh, this fact, you really locate Rinaldi as really more of a sinister character than I had ever read him before. That that the distinction between Rinaldi and Frederick really emerge in Rinaldi's treatment of whores and the way that he thinks about women in general. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I mean, it, you know, the the we are talking, of course, about a war situation, and and if women are in trouble. In peacetime, they're in really bad yeah. trouble in wartime. Uh, you know, the, the attitude that all women become sexual prey without question in war. Um, and so a man becomes, a male becomes clearly the predator. War allows for men to treat women in the same way they treat enemy combatants, really. Yeah. Uh, with complete disrespect and the desire at some sometimes to kill. 
And then there's that scene in Milan where Catherine feels like a whore, where she feels degraded because they stay at a hotel room where they're paying by the hour. And so, and so how does that change our, our appreciation of Catherine that it offends her dignity to do that? Well, as you know, I, I don't think you can think about Catherine as an actual person. I mean, <laughs> to me, she is such a figment of Frederick's needs. Um, basically what he needs at any given point, she becomes, that is what Hemingway needs her to be for Frederick to be what Hemingway wants Frederick to be, then Catherine has to be a certain way. And so she doesn't make any sense, really. She's not a coherent. She's not, she, the, the rules of characterization that apply to Frederick Henry do not apply to Catherine. Uh, and so she, there, there's a need for her to, to have this moment of hesitation or this moment of degradation. I'm not a hundred percent sure exactly why it's necessary for Henry's uh, Frederick Henry's psyche to have this, but, but I, I wouldn't want to embark on any intense investigation of Catherine's psychology because I think it's so completely determined by whatever Frederick Henry needs at the moment. And I mean, she's, she's, she's just, She's a figment of his imagination. Whatever you want, dear, you know, whatever you want. She also apologizes for feeling like a whore, right? So she complains about it and then later, and then just a few minutes later, apologizes. Yes. I mean, she's constantly apologizing. Well, you know, apologizing for her very existence. Does it affect our reading of Catherine to know that her fiancé, has already been killed. So that when we first meet her in the first few chapters of the novel, she herself is somewhat traumatized by the war. How does that enter into the characterization? Well, if I thought you could treat Catherine as a regular character, I think it would. But since her only relationship to that dead boyfriend is that she wished she had let him have sex with her, before he died. I mean, it's like, well, how about feeling sorry that he's gone? You know, how about the ordinary grief process that people go through? It's such a reduction of, you know, if this was a serious relationship, it's such a reduction of what women go through um, when beloveds are lost in war to just say, oh, I'm so sorry he did. I didn't let him have sex with me. If I only known he could have had everything. Mm. It's just, I mean, who says that kind of thing? I don't know. It just, I don't know what, I mean, if I wanted to be kind to Hemingway, I would say he's really trying to show us how uh, pathetic (laughs) sexism makes women. But I don't think in A Farewell to Arms, he really, I think he lost his critical edge, um, you know, somewhere along the way. And he started becoming the characters he created instead of exploring them. Judith, let me read, if, if you don't mind, I'd like to read a sentence from your chapter and sure. get your reaction to it, because I felt this was one of the most uh, provocative statements. If we explore the attitude toward women in A Farewell to Arms, we will discover that while the novel's surface investment is in idealization, behind that idealization is a hostility whose full measure can be taken from the fact that Catherine dies and dies because she is a woman. 
Yeah, good sentence. It is good. One true sentence. (laughs) (laughs) So So what's your question? So a couple questions. First of all, that word hostility is something that you come back to frequently in your chapter. And is this a hostility that is societal? Is this a hostility that is from Hemingway? Is this a hostility that Hemingway is depicting in Frederick? Well, I think all of the above. He's certainly falling into the classic pattern of version and horror. I mean, the whole culture is based on, if you, you talk about Christian culture, it's completely based on the fact women have two options. They can be a virgin and somehow give birth to Christ, which only one woman has managed to do in the history of humanity. So that option is really kind of out. Or you can be Mary Magdalene and be a whore. You know, so in the moment you you have sex with a man, you're off the pedestal of idealized angel. And you're in the degraded, debased character. You know, so... It's it's deeply embedded in our culture, deeply, deeply, deeply embedded hostility to women. I mean, as I say, it's playing out every day in this country right now with with the anti-abortion rules that are coming down the pike, which are so hostile. And the women who are standing up against that, the kinds of things that are said on the Internet, you know, to the women who are opposing these abortion uh, Right. I mean, the, it's it's it, the good thing is it's at the surface now. It's really not disguised in any nice language whatsoever. So there's that whole cultural context. And then there's the fact that, um, you know, yes, individually, Frederick Henry has to find a way to to look like he's a good guy while still escaping growing up which could be defined as, as being sexually comfortable, having a wife and children. He's got to find a way to his, so the image of him walking off alone in the rain, you know, talking to the dog, there's nothing there, dog. <laughs> I mean, so romantic and we all feel, oh, poor Frederick. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. And of course we also think, you know, that, that love and war are opposite, but, but the point I think the novel makes, whether intentionally or not, is that really, in, in Western culture, love is a form of war. And, you know, you can't open a newspaper today without reading that some woman has been shot by her husband or bludgeoned to death or knifed. So when you say that she dies and she dies because she is a woman, I see that she dies in a way that only a woman can die. But are you saying the way that you phrase it, obviously you're you're intending something much more intentional and specific. Yeah, she has to die so that Frederick Henry can appear to be who he is. I mean, it's it's like what what Poe said. You know, the most the most moving thing is the death of a beautiful woman. Well, moving to whom? Hardly to the beautiful woman, uh, but moving to the male sensibility because he can enjoy her beauty without having to worry about sex with her or without having to worry about children or support <laughs> or anything. I mean, she's dead, so. Hi, there's nothing I can do, but I can enjoy the fact that she's beautiful. Uh, So I think it's definitely, um, she dies because she's a woman in a novel that reflects a culture 
where for the hero, and this is perhaps particularly American culture, where to, for the hero to emerge as a solitary isolate and a killer, she's got to die because otherwise he wouldn't be solitary and isolate. Uh, I don't know about the killer. I mean, the killer is very deeply buried in his, his needs kill her. His needs to be who he is kills her. And because, of course, everybody's going to feel, oh, poor Frederick, poor Frederick. You know, it's so sad. Oh, this is such a sad well, book. kills her in the sense that their having sex together led to childbirth, which led to death. No, his needs. His needs to be alone at the end. I see. And to have that pose as a solitary figure, you know, bereft of his beloved, uh, his his need to walk off in the dark alone, not burdened by I child see. or what. The phrase that recurs in your chapter is self-pitying. So that's what you see at the, yeah. that last note in the rain is self-pitying. Yeah. It's very, it's all full of self pity. I mean, and that's what I think about Hemingway, who wrote Indian Camp. I mean, that's not a story of self pity. That's a story which says, "Holy moly, I was really, I was really traumatized. This was terrible." And and you know, I don't want to be like my father. I don't want to do that. And I don't want to be like. Well, of course, the Indian father is a little more complicated. I don't want to be like the Indian father. Probably leads to Frederick Henry, but. Not wanting to be like his own father could have led him in a different direction, but I I just don't see them. I and you know and I think about this. I don't know how you feel about the old man in the sea, and this is I know getting away a little bit from a fair no problem. Terms, but I look at that book and I think the guy who wrote that book has completely forgotten what his style meant. I don't know how you feel about that book, but I I I don't understand how anybody can see that as a great book. It's completely obvious. You know, it's, it's so in your face with this poor old fisherman who's finally gotten a fish and then the fish gets eaten up. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I'm really interested because I don't think I've ever read a feminist reading of The Old Man in the Sea or talked with a feminist scholar with a particular reading about it. But at the very beginning of our conversation, you said, uh, the Heming essentially the Hemingway hero is more comfortable in a world where there's men without women, and the old man in the sea would be the ultimate example of that. Oh yes, but it's the style that gets me. I mean, and I do see it in the difference between you know the the um, the the end of something. They're fishing in the end of something, you know, and they put out the lines, and that's very. You know, we're in the, in the the lines have to go way down. They have to land on the bottom, and there they sit waiting for the fish to come. So the, whatever the meaning is, whatever the intent is, whatever the the food value of the piece is, it's down underneath the surface, and the the line up above is just to show you that there's something down there, and then you have to figure out what it is that's down there because you can't see it from the surface. So. Then you come to the old man in the sea and the fish is up there on the surface. And, you know, it's so obvious. Oh, yes, he's got a fish. But, of course, everybody just, you know, he's going to be destroyed. You know, the male hero is always going to have his fish eaten up. It's, it's like, it's so, like, what happened to this guy? And And I think what happened was he got so invested in his life and in his image of himself, you know, as the as the war hero, the bullfighter, the you know, the uh, drug runner or not the drug runner, but whatever it was he did 
oats. <laughs> rum runner, yeah. Rum runner, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He got so invested in that image of himself that he forgot what his style was all about. Well, I don't know. If we had a longer episode, really, for whom the bell tolls, and the character of Pilar would be an interesting uh, discussion oh, yeah. discussion topic. I can. I think I see what you're going to say about Maria, but Pilar would certainly be, uh, yeah. right? Yeah, right. Yeah, that would be an interesting thing. And maybe because he was because she was part of Spanish culture, he was able uh, to imagine something slightly different than what he could imagine. Because though Catherine Barkley is, you know, uh, technically English, that is really irrelevant. She's an American woman made to. Made, did you ever see that wonderful movie uh, with the the guy with the blown up doll? Oh God, what was it called? Where he has oh the real girl, Lars and the real girl. Did you ever see no. that? Oh, it's a great movie. Um, and you know he's he's been given s- such a hard time. I mean he's a he's a somewhat damaged guy and. He's been given such a hard time because he's not dating with anything that he just orders one of these blow up dolls, you know, and he, and then the whole community gathers around him and, and uh, supports him in this. But uh, and he finally outgrows it and gets to be a, a real place. But that's, that's, you know, that's what I think about with, with these women that, that Hemingway creates. They're just, they're just dolls. They're blown up to, to make his, his uh, particular character look, the way he wants him to look. Judith, one more moment in A Farewell to Arms that I wanted to get you to uh, elaborate on that you did mention in, in your chapter. And you talked about the dichotomy, the, the virgin whore binary. And we have that little episode during the retreat where Frederick and his, his friends, his, the troops, meet the two frightened virgins. That hurt. That that's a painful episode for you to. It is, Mark, because there is no war that hasn't included massive rape uh, of of enemy women, and maybe and since all women are either the enemy of one side or the other, you know, I just shudder to think what's happening in the Ukraine, in territories that. The Russians have taken over, or conversely, if the Ukrainians were to take over some territory that had a large Russian civilian population, who who knows? I mean, and in a way, and I'm also I'm just listening to uh, Tim O'Brien's narrative about the Vietnam War. Uh, if I die in a combat yeah, zone, sure. uh, and of course, the Vietnam War is a classic example of of the the incredible abuse that the civilian population suffered. And yet also of the a clear explanation of the context within which it happens. So that as you see your your soldier, fellow soldiers being blown apart by mines, you develop such a hatred of the enemy population. And because we live in such a sexist culture, one of the strongest ways to strike back at a male enemy is to defile his women, to rape his women. So wouldn't you say that Hemingway's portrayal of that scene, the way that he describes it, is acknowledging this horror that goes on in war, and 
he's to be credited to point this aspect of of men at war. It's possible. I'd have to reread the book really carefully to see if there was that real. Um, I, I forget enough of the context around that to to be able to say with any mm. assurance that that's a sign. I mean, he certainly understands that war is is vicious to the civilian population. He captures how scared the little girls are, and Frederick gives them money and says, you know, take off or beat it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, beat it. Yeah, you, you don't you don't want to be here, right? So yeah, that's yeah, a that's that is an interesting point. It's even there. Let me just say sure, quickly, sure, that sensibility is definitely there in that first section of in our time. That very you know, the strange thing was how they screamed every night at midnight. I mean, when he describes what goes on with that population, you know, that is is stuck on this key, I guess you pronounce that word key yeah. at Smyrna and they're, they're trying to evacuate them, but the enemy forces are, are right there. And I mean, the, the chaos and the horror for the women, I mean, he does understand that there's no question about that. Judith. So you published this, uh, your book in 1978. What has been the reaction both from general readers about this particular chapter or from Hemingway specialists who might be defensive about what they read in your chapter. You know, I really <laughs> should ask you that, Mark, because you've been doing, you're putting together the Norton edition, right? Or is it the Norton edition that you're putting together? I'm, I'm writing an introduction for the Norton Library edition, but our friend Mark Dudley is writing the Norton Critical Edition or editing the Norton Critical Edition. Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, um, I really did not follow the uh, a reception. I think that is the name of that journal, Reception, that had the, the, the recent um, issue on the resisting reader. I mean, I'm sure there was a great deal of, of hostility uh, to the uh, treatment of Hemingway. Um, but I moved... I had to decide after I finished the resisting reader, I had to decide whether it was going to continue to write about the canonical male tradition. And, and there was a lot I wanted to say about relationship between attitudes towards gender and uses of language. Mm. But I really, I really decided after much soul searching and much consultation that, that I wanted to see this vast, um, it was kind of like a, you know, discovering America, right? Um, that this vast territory of writing that was done in the 19th century by women about which only terrible things have been said, but which I knew these people who were saying them had never read the material themselves. They were, you know, it was all Heming, all Hawthorne had to do was call them a damn mob of scribbling women because he was jealous. And that was it. That, was enough. Okay, he's the the God has spoken. These must be a damn mob of scribbling women who are writing stuff that is total trash. Uh, so I didn't really um, follow too much what happened in in um, Hemingway circles as a result. But you might have. Some well, I, on I that. will say that you are not the only critic to complain about Catherine Barclay's depiction, in the sense that she is less than a three-dimensional person in many people's eyes. And then there are people who argue the opposite, that if you look at her during the escape 
uh, she's actually more mature and more of a person than Frederick is. So, mm-hmm. so you're definitely, your, your work is definitely part of the debate. You know, you mentioned the style, Judith. Can you appreciate the style of a writer if you're deploring what the writer is writing about? Sure. I appreciate Hemingway's style. Now, of course, I appreciate it more in those early stories where, where I think the style is absolutely consonant with a very potentially radical feminist perspective. Um, but I can, um, I don't enjoy later Hemingway because I think he forgot what his style was all about. Not because it's, you know, not because of the content, but because in fact, the style doesn't work. And I, you know, I keep coming back to that question. You know, it's almost like Freud. You know, once once Freud has mentioned the unconscious, nobody can write a traditional, you know, 19th century British novel again. Because once you've got that idea in your head, then nothing is unconscious anymore. It's, I mean, it's a hard way to say that. But, but once something has been done, then maybe it can't be done again. Right. And I mean, the fact that he- there's even, yes, you know, there's what, Hemingway still, that contest goes on yeah, to see sure. who can write the greatest imitation of Hemingway. I mean, it's so imitable that it almost becomes a parody, which I think an old, the old man in the sea is really a parody of Hemingway. Uh, Hemingway's style is his excellent style. But, but yes, I can. Um, and where literature is concerned, I mean, take Norman Mailer for an example. You know, I, the last chapter of the book is about Norman yeah. Mailer, who's, you know, so over the top. In a way, his style really isn't all that good. But, you know, if he, I could appreciate something that Norman Mailer wrote if it was, if it was really well written. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think one always has to just, dis, dis, you know, be able to dissociate in somewhat. Yeah. If you're talking about literature now, I mean, if you're talking about essays and stuff like that, that's a whole different Gotcha. You also invoke, well, I guess Hemingway did it before you did it, but Hemingway invoked Othello. And I thought that was a really interesting connection that you made where you're saying, if you're going to talk about Othello, then let's talk about Othello. And in what way do you see that relating sort of Frederick as Othello Catherine as Desdemona. Remind me who who says that. Does does Catherine say it to Frederick? Your occupation. Exactly, that's exactly right. And then then Frederick has a vile racial epithet to describe Othello, and then um, that's really what their discussion is. Your connection about that, which I, I thought was was fascinating, was like, okay, so. How does Othello, who is, uh, you know, a, a military man, and what is his in it? What it comes down to is ego, and betrayal or perceived betrayal, and what happens to Desdemona? Uh, why does why essentially why does Desdemona have to die in the in that play? Well, I don't really see Frederick as Othello. I have to say, I mean, Othello. And Othello is the racial issue complicates Othello because it's hard to know if Shakespeare is suggesting that a man of his race is more easily moved to to um, emotions 
and violence uh, than other men. That is, he's more easily made irrational um, than than a white man would be. And and I'm not sure. I think that I think the portrait of Othello is very complicated. But but from the point of view of sexism, of course, it's been a time honored tradition, and still is in many countries. That if a woman is considered to have have become um, you know betrayed the man sexually he has a right to kill her well this is also an italian narrative right othello and and a feral time yeah. Yeah. but it's happening all over the world men in various countries are killing women because they suspect them of infidelity yeah. but i don't see that in in i don't see that level of sexism in in a farewell to arms and i'm not quite sure why hemingway invokes it except i think it's more the whole question of hemingway's relationship to the military right. you know he's he's um he is very uh, critical of the whole military uh mission i mean he's he is defected right i mean he's left the the military he's 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 not wanting to go back to the army so i think it's more you know what's he supposed to do he's smashed he's lying there with a smashed up leg what's he going to do and then when the leg heals does he want to go back does he not want to go back um you know and othello is of course stripped of his occupation um after he has committed this murder but i don't i don't think i don't see jealousy as as a as a feature of a farewell to arms i don't know do you the only f jealousy that comes to mind is when catherine is quizzing frederick about prostitutes that he's frequented oh. and said like do you say do they tell you that they love you and she kind of, and i think even in your article you say she kind of tortures herself by by asking these questions that you're not going to like mm -hmm. the answer, so why are you asking these questions? And so mm -hmm. it's sort of sort of poking at jealousy, sort of like you know, uh, rubbing mm -hmm. rubbing that wound. But so that that's what I um, that's what I read, Judith. You know, I as I was reading your article, I I was just wondering if you could take me back to the composition of it. Uh, what tone were you striking, uh, trying to strike, or how are you? Uh, what was your attitude? And the reason I ask is because it seems as you were eviscerating the novel, or at least aspects of the novel, th that you were getting a, a lot of enjoyment out of it. it. It seemed it seemed pretty entertaining in how you were doing it. Am I wrong about that? Well, you have to remember the time difference. That was 50 years ago that that book was written, really close to that, because I started right. it in in 1970 actually i started it in 1972 wow. um so it's definitely been uh and i and it was coming out of the first uh wave of second wave feminism which which was characterized by a great deal of anger and and rightly so because you know the the whole consciousness raising movement was a movement of recognizing that basically everything you've been told was true was really a lie mm. and that carried over into this kind of glorification of hemingway the great american writer everybody aspired to be hemingway 
every woman wanted to be a character in a Hemingway novel, you know, and to, to sort of rage at this bill of goods that we've been sold uh, that was really so terrible for women. So the dominant emotion of the writing of it was was the desire to to really lay open the politics that I felt were at work in these these classic American texts that so constructed women as as not really being part of the human race. So you were in, uh, indignant as you were writing this. I was enraged. Enraged. I was way beyond indignant. I was enraged. <laughs> Judith, I mentioned in the biography that you've gone on to be a professional gardener and a garden designer. What is the connection between being a literary scholar and a garden designer? Well, not much, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you'd asked me before I quit my academic job, what did I do for a living? I would say, I write sentences, <laughs> I read sentences, I, I correct sentences, I tell people how to write better sentences. And then after I've been doing the garden work for a while, I say, well, I arrange plants in space. <laughs> That's what I do. Uh, is there a connection? No, there really isn't a connection, except I needed to do something different. You know, I just felt really um, strongly that I, and, and, and I also was, I would say, the, the tip, there was many reasons why I left what I did, but one of the tipping points was when I, when I found myself reluctant to tell my students what year I graduated from high school, I thought, okay, age is suddenly becoming a potential barrier. And then the other thing was I realized that I could not cut my expectations any further down. I mean, I had already cut my reading list in half. I had lowered my, you know, my requirements. I couldn't do it and be me. I mean, I was a person of a different generation, and I cannot say in strong enough terms how grateful I am not to be in the academy now. I wanted to do something different, and it. it I had been gardening for a while, and I just kind of developed this through a number of things, it became very clear that I had some potential in, in garden design. I wouldn't call myself a professional gardener, but a semi-professional gardener. And that I could, you know, that, I, that there was a niche I could fill, that, that I wasn't going to be a, you know, major landscape company to come in and build, you know, make trees and do fences and stone walls and stuff. But people who just wanted a little help, uh, to make their garden just somewhat better. That I could do. I could go in and say, you know, if you move this plant over here or if you took that straight line and made it a little bit of a curve or if you put a, you know, a rock over here or whatever, you would be amazed at the difference. So that was the kind of thing I did. And then I became a master gardener as well for Albany County. And that has led to enormous, um, like the work at the town hall, putting in the native garden, uh, we we have demonstration gardens out at the Cornell Cooperative Extension for Albany County, and we have 23 different demonstration gardens. So, To learn more about your activities, would they go to Perennial Wisdom? www.perennialwisdom.net. And I do have a, a newsletter that I put out every other week when I can get to it. <laughs> I'm way behind right now, but... But yeah, um, it, and it's been interesting. It, you know, it's it's been an amazing experience. I cannot 
quite believe in my own good fortune to have discovered this. Well, we were in good fortune to have you join us today. Judith Federley, thank you so much. This has been a delight. And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on OneTruePod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is supported by the Hemingway Society, the English Department at the University of Evansville, and Florida Gulf Coast University. Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Until then, I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast. Oh, no.